Hello, hello, and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Gianna. And I'm Bianca. Bianca, have you seen the movie The Monuments Men? <laughs> you know, I have. And uh, it's all right. You know, it's an okay art movie. <laughs> Always love to see a good art movie. Love to see it. We're not going to talk about that today. We are, however, <laughs> going to talk about <laughs> monuments. Just not anything monumentally related to George Clooney and Matt Damon. Oh, I see. So are you saying we're talking about things like statues and historic markers and maybe asking questions like, what's the difference between public art and a monument? You are correct indeed. Let's start this monumental episode of Art Pop Talk. Gianna, how many times can we say something is monumental in this episode? Probably <laughs> just as much as we say stunning when we talk about art. <laughs> stunning. Stunning. <laughs> I literally all week in preparing for this episode, I hear... RuPaul's voice in my head is saying reading is monumental like I just can't I can't get him saying that out or I'm just switching monumental and fundamental but I like the way RuPaul sounds in my head talking about monuments I wish RuPaul could talk about monuments with us today but alas I'll have to settle for you I suppose <laughs> Great. I'm sure you're super excited about that. But first thing is first, I'm not RuPaul. Uh, <laughs> we did, however, get a lot of great feedback on our bathroom episode. So I just wanted to thank everyone who listened to that episode. We got a lot of great questions, a lot of great follow-up conversations about the episode. So thank you all for sharing your thoughts and keep them coming. Uh, Gianna, you also had something that you wanted to add in response to kind of listening back to our episode as well. Yeah, it was such a fantastic episode and it was so exciting to see all the engagement we got from it. Also, I was getting ads for Kohler all throughout this week, which I thought was really funny. No um, way. Do yeah. you follow them? No, I don't, but I'm going to get made fun of for this. I still have ads on Spotify because I don't pay for Spotify premium <laughs> and I'm probably the last human being in the world that does not have a Spotify subscription, but I got ads for Kohler and no way like full length commercials on my on my Spotify on Spotify yeah and actually it's really interesting because Kohler is making this like shower head nozzle or some kind of appliance that also has already like a built in speaker to it and he did think that oh, was that's what I need yeah no it's definitely like cool they do cool things like no one is arguing that but yeah I'm I'm definitely that getting tracked. But to my shower whoever needs. is tracking me at just LOLing because I was critiquing <laughs> the hell out of Kohler and it's like, buy their products. Um, is good. Is good. Um, <clears throat> aside from that, I have had this one little thing that's been nagging at me this entire week. This episode could not come soon enough uh, because there's just been one little thing that's been keeping me up at night. People, objective versus subjective. You're going to have to excuse me when 
talking about Bianca's conversation and recapping her experience in visiting the Kohler Art Center and looking at the bathrooms, I kept saying over and over again how art was so objective. <laughs> <laughs> Which, in fairness, it is. And I it think is. our conversation about the uh, aesthetics and, and and what we were visually seeing was pretty objective. But you, it is subjective in the way that you feel about that. So I do 10 embarrassing things a day. But when it comes down to little things like that, like that's what keeps me up at night. So I just needed to let everybody know how I was feeling about that. <laughs> um, but it also spurred an interesting conversation that Bianca and I were having just about how we want to move forward and having more open conversations here on our pop talk. So instead of just editing out my mistake, I rather just talk about it and also acknowledge that what's been keeping me up at night is because of how intimidating our field can be to talk about. And I'm going to slip up sometimes on language. You know, it's so interesting because even in talking to Bianca, you didn't even catch me on my mistake when we were having our conversation. So it's right totally such a small little thing, but it did open up a cool conversation that we had. Yeah, definitely. And the, I was telling Gianna the reason that I didn't cut it out of the audio was because I thought your point was strong enough to where people would understand that you meant subjective instead of objective. But yeah, after Gian and I were talking about it earlier, it just brought up this point again, which is why we love doing art pop talk so much and having these conversations because Gianna and I don't know everything when we go into a museum. We don't know everything when we're having a conversation about art with someone else who knows something about something that we don't. It's just working in this field perpetuates this idea that you have to be perfect and I think that's also part of the work ethic that has been really interesting to kind of evaluate in America as we move through COVID and outside of that as well but just the emphasis that we've had on on the workplace over the past year just got Gianna and I talking about how demanding it feels to to need to be a perfectionist all the time at work and that's just not what art and work and life is about it's about dialogue it's about conversation it's not about being perfect because I don't know if you guys know this but nothing about art is perfect and you don't have to be perfect to talk about it you don't have to know everything to talk about it and that's exactly what Gianna and I want to keep impressing upon everybody who listens to this is that art is accessible and for us not editing that out or being more candid in our conversations just strengthens that point Mm -hmm. that everybody can be welcome in this conversation it's okay if you you mess up or if you say the wrong word it's not a big deal speaking of slip ups (laughs) and mistakes and not knowing everything Gianna and I also wanted to briefly acknowledge looking back at our Oscars recap when we were talking about the Brad Pitt Yeojun Yoon interaction we were at the time understanding that interaction as more affectionate than it really was and we'll link some notes and our resources for you but we just kind of wanted to acknowledge that it's been a larger topic of conversation after we released that episode that the point around that interaction was very American-centric and 
focused on the American storyline of kind of Brad Pitt and this like celebrity fangirl moment that placed Brad Pitt in a more glamorized position than he may have deserved for his role in producing Minari. So I just wanted to acknowledge that if you are going back and listening to our Oscars episode. The second thing that happened to me this week, going back to our Oscars episode, is I want to give a shout out to an amazing art pop tart who brought up the point that you and I didn't talk about Harrison Ford at the Oscars. (laughs) And... I feel as though that's detrimental to our brand, and I just wanted to say that I was honestly so thrilled at the time to see Harrison, but also very, very concerned because he is an elderly man, and I just wanted to make sure that he was being safe, but you know, he was probably there for all of five minutes. I just don't know why. I mean, the reason why he didn't bring it up was because he didn't do anything and there was no point to him being there. Um, (laughs) As much as I love him, I don't know why COVID should be these actors' years who could give a shit about awards to not show up to these things. Like, the fact that Joaquin Phoenix has to keep showing up to these things in the middle of a pandemic, like this was his year. And I'm really, really not to show up, not to show up. And I'm really, right. really sad for him that we couldn't make that happen <laughs> for him. And I think the same goes for Harrison Ford. So agreed. I think to appease them, I didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was I was so happy to see him. I love to know that he's doing well in <laughs> his isolation from the celebrity community. But well, thank you, thank you for calling that to our attention. Yes, it is funny. I, that I feel they like noticed. I feel as though it is our job to report on Harrison Ford news. Mm, yes, yes. Thank you for <laughs> keeping us <laughs> accountable. Um, <laughs> We do have a lot of different stories that took place this week. So we are actually going to mix things up for art news this week in the format in which we do that, which will be a headline edition. The Museum of Modern Art blocked protesters from entering the museum last Friday afternoon at the conclusion of a march designed to focus attention on what the demonstrators say is the undue influence of wealthy patrons on the cultural institution's value and programming. The museum said it was forced to shut the doors when protesters attempted to force their way into the museum. In response, museum security personnel closed the entrance in accordance with established safety protocols. Florence's Uffizi Gallery reopened last week after another government-imposed lockdown. After a six-month closure for renovations, the second floor of the gallery, home to 15th to 17th century works of art by the likes of Titian Caravaggio and Tintoretto, has finally reopened. The area, which makes up half of the museum, has been under steady renovation since 2018. But there was a surprise in store for visitors. Not only are there 14 new rooms and 129 works of art newly on display, but the new Uffizi is allocating space to artists who have historically been excluded from the canon, women and people of color. Nice. Gotta go back to the Uffizi. There is a growing call to boycott the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. I mean, I guess finally. (laughs) 
the group of almost 90 white people who control the Golden Globe Awards. The HFPA is also facing um, shocking ethical allegations about how it compensates its members. Cough, cough, we are looking at you, Emily in Paris. However, Netflix said in a statement, quote, we're stopping any activities with your organization until more meaningful changes are made. Scarlett Johansson has also spoken out against this organization, saying that she's faced behavior that borders sexual harassment at their events. Do you have a But Coffee First shirt? A Chevron Throw Pillow? Or a Girl Boss Sparkly Tumbler? Well, you might be chuggy. The use, or specifically Gabby Reeson, age 23, a software developer in Los Angeles who coined the term, they've got a new word for you. It's not quite basic, which can describe someone who is a conformist or perhaps generic in their taste, and it's not quite uncool. It's not embarrassing or even always negative. Chugi can be used broadly to describe someone who is out of date or trying too hard. It's not just a way to describe people. The Hype House, Golden Goose sneakers, anything associated with Barstool Sports, the <laughs> Gucci belt from the 2012-2015 days, being really into sneaker culture, Ray Dunn pottery, and anything <laughs> Chevron. Welcome, Chugi, to the visual world. We're excited to welcome you into art history. <laughs> um, those are the headlines for today. We'll link full-length articles for you on our resources page, which you can find by clicking the link found in this podcast episode's show notes wherever you listen and in our social media bio. I'm so excited to welcome Chugi into the art world. I mean, she's always been there. <laughs> it's nice she has a seat at the table now. She's got a name. Yeah, I'm glad she has a name, too. That's nice. That's nice of the youths <laughs> to give her a name. <laughs> On that note, are we ready to art pop talk? Today's episode is all about monuments, and there are a lot of different types of monuments. So since we really haven't covered this topic in isolation, we've covered a lot of different monument-esque pieces of art. This is going to be kind of our introductory conversation into exploring monuments further down the road. As I was talking about last week when we were talking about the Kohler bathrooms, this conversation was spurred by my trip to Gettysburg. And it was really fascinating to be in that type of space where you are sort of familiar with this version of history that's presented to you in your textbooks. You hear about it on like PBS documentaries, or at least Gianna and I did growing up. I feel like Gettysburg is kind of, it's always there. It's always existed as this monumental space. And actually being there was was really eerie and there were all these kind of mixed messages I guess you're receiving when you're in the space because you're placed in this contemporary setting with such a loaded history and at the same time you're just kind of looking at a field you're just kind of out 
in the open and and have to take in a different type of of consideration of your space. So we went to the Gettysburg Museum, which <laughs> was interesting. And then after the museum, we walked around the fields of Gettysburg. As you walk outside, there are so many different types of monuments. There are obviously grave markers, there are tombstones, there are statues, there are just big boulders in random places of the field that mark or dedicate this space to someone or something. And they're everywhere. They're just everywhere you look, these different kinds of markers. So I kept kind of thinking about all of these markers as we're walking around this space and trying to define what a monument was. And so Gianna, I wanted to get your take. I was just reeling with all of these questions. So for you, what do you think of when you think of a monument? What in your mind makes something a monument? So when I think of something like a monument, I instantly think of traveling, uh, making sure I'm visiting Mm -hmm. all the historic spots pertaining to that location's history. And I think of history just in general. uh, And we're going to probably reflect on our conversation we've had about public art uh, throughout our conversation today. But I also think of loss and tragedy and you know, what history is pertaining to that certain location. So Mm -hmm. a monument is a type of artful structure created to commemorate a person or event, or again, relating to or pertaining to a remembrance of a historic event or perhaps a cultural heritage as well. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you bring up that definition. I'm going to read another one here in a second. But it is interesting how what we in ourselves define as monumental because I feel like monumental has these different kind of colloquial definitions. It, it feels like there are some monumental things that we speak of in everyday life that have a positive connotation, but anytime that we are talking about monuments in art, it feels kind of distorted or it feels like it's it's not relevant to us. It feels like it's something to be experienced from from a from a distance or something like that. Yeah. It doesn't it doesn't feel like you can kind of grasp on easily to what the monument is conveying to you. Yeah, I wouldn't say that it's not necessarily not relevant. It's just that typically so much has to happen for a monument to take place. Therefore, a lot of time has presumably passed between the time you're experiencing it to the time of what moment we're um, commemorating. Right. So that's exactly what the art history babes say. And I'm going to read from the babes book, The Honest Art Dictionary, which is fantastic. Everybody should buy it. In it, they define monuments as, quote, an object created in a public space to commemorate an event or particular person. Monuments take on various forms. From sculpture to architectural sites, they have an extensive history. 
they provide a lot of insight into the historical period during which they were commissioned and constructed. Monuments are everywhere. And to your point, Gianna, a lot of the conversation around monuments over the past year has changed because of the social, political, and economic values that pass and change over time. And we'll get into this. You have the intent of the original monument or original artwork. We can think about these things in the same terms. Um, But also contemporary moments in history continues to evolve. So therefore, the ways in which we view a monument just as we view a work of art is going to change. Who gets to decide the dominant value for erecting that monument? Mm. I mean, for all of the monuments and sculptures and statues that we've been talking about that have been taken down, that represented a group of people's value at the time. And it just is so tied into race, class, gender, all of these systems that are in place to put power in the hands of one person or one certain group of people, white men. And it's just interesting that we kind of have this definition of of monuments as being guided by these values of the time that they were commemorated in, but that's not really how everybody experienced these values over time. There are always going to be people, no matter what the monument is, that don't like it, that don't agree with what it stands for, that don't, that, you know, don't think it should be there. I mean, just off the top of my head, I'm thinking about Mount Rushmore. Why are four white men carved into the side of a mountain? I don't know that it should be there, but at the time, someone was like, you know, what's a great idea because it's so tied to the land. Is that ever going to be erased well in a way even though it doesn't reflect the people who live in this country and whose land they are carving out to make that piece particularly some of the monuments that we'll look at today actually got me thinking of earth art at the same time um so thinking about something like mount rushmore which is literally carved into the face of a mountain like, that's also earth art. It's interesting to to think about that in terms of all the fucked up things that have happened in American history. Uh, not only is that created on stolen land, but you're using that land to, in particular, celebrate our founding fathers. Yeah, right. Quote, unquote. Quote, unquote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about earth art a lot, too, and land art. I guess... My brain got me there eventually, but it's interesting that I think of of monuments as being a kind of man-made claim on the land, Mm -hmm. not necessarily that something, it's not something that naturally, if it is, if monuments are part of earth art, it it feels so crafted, like Mm -hmm. earth art, I think like Spiral Jetty, for Mm -hmm. example, just adds something to the earth that doesn't feel as I don't know imposing but then with other forms of earth art just like you're saying with Mount Rushmore it doesn't make sense it's like an announcement of your presence it's it's a way of of like marking your territory I might they might as well just peed all over the side of the mountain um <laughs> but in the context going back to your experience 
at Gettysburg, I have never been there, but I do find their their active preservation and just being able to have people walk that landscape and their lack of manipulation in that sense um, is is actually really fascinating. Um, I mean, there are so many historic destinations that you know, choose to preserve what is already there. I mean, we can talk about the numerous um, concentration camps and Holocaust memorials or like the Berlin Wall Memorial that takes what has already been there and just works to preserve Mm -hmm. it and has made that into a sort of memorial. Um, It's just like Gettysburg is, you know, just using that vast landscape in that case. But it is interesting to think about. Yeah, that's a really great point. The idea of preservation, Mm -hmm. As a is just as recognizable and is it has become an acceptable form of like a monument formula just mm-hmm. as other constructive spaces and, and architectures have become as well. So thinking about our own landscape of monuments that we grew up around, we grew up, as we've said, around Oklahoma City. So when we were thinking about this episode, Gianna and I inherently thought about the Oklahoma City Memorial Building. And if you've never been there, there was a bombing at the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building on April 19th, 1995. And since then, they have erected a really incredible space. They have a museum And then outside of the museum, the outdoor symbolic memorial is what the museum calls sacred soil, a place of quiet reflection where hope begins to grow anew. There is a field of empty chairs, a reflecting pool, and a rescuer's orchard. And above the reflecting pool, there is a monumental arch that is time-stamped as a reflection of the time before and after the bomb went off. So when I was looking at images of the memorial, I realized that they were calling it the Oklahoma City Memorial Building, and I was thinking about it as a monument. So Gianna, what do you think the difference is between a monument and a memorial? For me, I think a lot of our conversation today is going to pertain around the action or involvement of the viewer. If it is a memorial, if you are not having someone physically in the space who is working to remember that moment, um, then in a sense, the art in itself is not being completed. So having people relive these histories and, and honor these people who in particular for memorials are, you know, working to communicate to us, that's a huge part of that experience. Monuments, because of their significance, are typically on what we think of as a very grand scale. And they're not going to happen or they're not going to be created unless this event or person or tragedy is or was very significant. Because a large part of this conversation about monuments and memorials is also going to surround public and federal government and rulings who deem what is important or significant. As Bianca was talking about earlier, especially 
in recent contemporary settings, the public has really made an effort to help make and guide those decisions for what has been appropriate monuments and not appropriate monuments, who we should be celebrating and not celebrating. But in a sense, a lot of how this works, especially on grand projects like this, and we'll talk about it in a little bit, is that architects or artists will submit a proposal and they're just one of many. And there's Mm -hmm. a board and there's a lot of funding that comes from that typically by local and and federal governments, depending on the, the installation. So there are a lot of factors for each, but there are so many similarities. And I think a lot of Mm -hmm. monuments that I actually have been able to experience are more so memorials. I I love what you said, Gianna, about just taking it back to the viewer. That almost seems like such a simple way to think about art and action and what it means for each person. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really great point because you are there in a sense to memorialize what took place that day with the case of Oklahoma City. But I wonder if not everybody feels that way when they go visit the memorial building. Mm -hmm. If there's, I, I mean, I know a lot of people when they come to Oklahoma, they want to see, they want to see the space but does it always feel like a memorial to them because it wasn't part of their community necessarily? Mm-hmm. And does it feel more like a commemorative monument to something that, in in my view, like I was saying earlier, feels a little bit more distant mm-hmm. from them? Yeah, I mean, it is, an, it is incredible to experience a memorial where you have people still alive today who have experienced and and was there when that bombing took place. And I think Mm -hmm. since we are from Oklahoma, it is really haunting to hear people and particularly our mother Mm -hmm. convey to us what it was like and be able to remember what happened that day. Taking the 9-11 memorial, for example, I've been there on multiple occasions and I have a lot of thoughts about that memorial, but I am a little bit in some ways a little bit far removed from that because, again, I have this experience that I I know people who are living who have been so affected by that, even though 9-11 was an Mm -hmm. attack on our entire nation and it affected Mm -hmm. so many people. You know, it's just each lived experience, it is really different. And at the end of the day, monuments and memorials are just providing a place Mm-hmm. for you to relive those histories. Yeah. The Inclusive Historian's Handbook reads that, quote, the terms that we use to describe the products of commemoration, words such as monument and memorial, may vary in purpose. Monument, for instance, usually refers to a commemorative structure or edifice, whereas memorial applies to almost anything including buildings, books, roads, stadiums that recall the dead or the experience of profound loss. More significant than these shades of meaning is the ubiquity of words such as monument and memorial in our daily lives. Language reveals the extent to which memory surrounds us everywhere and always. So I thought that was another definer for something like the field of art history and history where we really don't we don't always take the viewer and their experience 
into account when we're defining those terms. We look at it more, I think, on a on a factual and practical basis rather than an individualized basis because mm-hmm. it, it it feels almost impossible to define something based on every person who might encounter it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think as well, kind of pinpointing this quote in the use of language and the act of the individual, there is something so unique about the Oklahoma City Memorial. Um, there's a more, there's an interesting physicality when it comes to each specific person who who mm-hmm. died that day and and because they are resembled by these chairs and there's something very Mm -hmm. intimate about these sculptures and what you have the whole monument in itself but then you have each of these chairs representing a person or like other memorials like the 9-11 or the Vietnam Memorial you're going to have the written names yeah well the names are written I think the names are written on the chairs Mm. but it's interesting that whenever you have the that textual element that's not really what we're seeing from afar i mean gianna and i are looking at an image of the chair on the okc memorial grounds right now and i i think i read that the names are there but that's not what we see as a whole what we see is this kind of mass grave yeah that's that's represented in this kind of light and we're not focusing on the individual and and for other people that may be different if they did experience a loss they may be kind of hyper fixated on that individual quality that it brings and i think that's the same for the vietnam memorial when you look at it from afar as we'll talk about it seems like a sculpture mm-hmm. but when you get up close you do have a obviously a very individualized presence with names being written on the work itself Mm -hmm. it is interesting in doing the research prior to this and thinking about the intent of these architects and how they talk about how it looks from an aerial view or a whole view Mm -hmm. and how that is so important to acknowledge it's especially as an artist or an architect but I think these particularly these art architects are challenged to think in different ways about how the visual perspective of a viewer will come in to place um mm-hmm. kind of tying back into earth art and public art the survivor tree for the oklahoma city memorial is really interesting they have taken pods from this tree and they have planted them all over the oklahoma landscape um, surprisingly enough the retirement community and memory care facility in which i worked for a little bit after graduation there was a survivor tree planted on that premises and so you just never know when you're gonna come across one and that mm-hmm. is a really interesting way of showing how this affected the entire state and also kind of unifying the the event and the tragedy at the same time Mm -hmm. and it's interesting that we're going back to earth art and thinking about a positive mark on the land Mm -hmm. like something like replanting a tree because it doesn't announce itself it doesn't stake a claim Mm -hmm. it's just a it's just an an acknowledgement of history without being so brash in its presence it is and this bombing and this monument here erected in oklahoma city has of course 
affected the landscape of that particular space. Mm -hmm. But it's just another reminder and action that this has infected the entire state without doing it in a, you know, it's also doing it in a sustainable way. But again, like you said, putting Mm -hmm. a a hopeful Mm -hmm. spin on such a traumatic event and astonishing tragedy. Um, Another part of the Oklahoma landscape that we're familiar with is the Tulsa Race Massacre Monument in Tulsa. In Tulsa, close to the Arts District in the city area, there is the John Hope Franklin Reconciliation Park. So the park was dedicated in May of 2018, but it was a long-awaited result of the 2001 Oklahoma Commission to study the Tulsa Massacre of 1921. So we have talked about the Tulsa Race Massacre on our Pop Talk. It is called the worst civic disturbance in American history. The park also tells the story of African Americans' role in building Oklahoma and thus being the long-delayed rendering of the full account of Oklahoma's history. So the park features a bronze work by the prominent Denver sculptor Ed Dwight. And the primary art elements are the Hope Plaza, and the Tower of Reconciliation. The park's entries, 16-foot granite structure contains three larger-than-life bronze sculptures representing actual pictures from the 1921 massacre. So there's hostility represented by a white man fully armed for assault, humiliation represented by a black man with his hands raised in surrender, in Hope, represented by the white director of the Red Cross holding a black baby. For the Tower of Reconciliation, at the center of the park, the 25-foot-tall memorial tower depicts the history of the African-American struggle from Africa to America from the migration of slaves with Native Americans on the Trail of Tears, the slave labor experience in the territories, the first Kansas-controlled volunteer infantry that won the Battle of Honey Springs to statehood, the immigration of free Blacks into Oklahoma, and all Black towns in Greenwood. It honors Buxie Franklin, a prominent Black attorney and Dr. Franklin's father, and other early Tulsa Black leaders. John Hope Franklin Reconciliation Park continues as the American tradition for erecting memorials based on tragic events by giving voices to the untold stories of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre and the important role African Americans have played again in building Oklahoma. So what is the difference between public art and a monument then as we get into this conversation a little bit more? Because particularly the Tower of Reconciliation, considering 20 feet tall in comparison to how tall the Oklahoma City Memorial bombing is or how wide the 9-11 fountain is, is not as big as the others, but it is prominent in the space in which it resides, of course. Yes, this was a super interesting point of conversation that came up when Gianna and I were thinking about this episode because we immediately thought about the OKC Memorial and then the Tulsa Massacre Monument And Gianna asked me this question of, is this a monument or is this just a piece of public sculpture? It's also interesting that the sculpture in the Reconciliation Park is 
reminiscent of the Tower of Trajan, Mm -hmm. which is a Roman triumphal column in Rome, Italy, that commemorates Roman emperors Trajan's victory over the Dacian in the Dacian Wars. And I, whenever I see this sculpture in Tulsa, I'm always kind of coming back to this point that I recognize in art history, which is that Tower of Trajan, Mm -hmm. which I, it's a victory column, but I, I don't always think of the Tower of Trajan as being commemorative as a monument. I think of it as this kind of art historical contextual piece that in then is informing my perception of the Tower of Reconciliation in Tulsa. So mm-hmm. I think that's also n- not a problem. It's just something that I'm kind of working through in separating what that lineage of Art History 101 has kind of instilled in me as separating monuments from art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Going back to the Honest Art Dictionary, the babes define public art as public art is any art that is made with the intention of being staged or exhibited in the physical public domain. The work's location is almost always a very important aspect of public art, and site specificity plays a significant role in understanding the context of a work. Having said that, in most instances, the relationship between the content of a piece and its audience that is, what the art is trying to say and to whom, is just as important, if not more so than the work's physical location. And interestingly, before I had read the next page of the Babe's definition, Gianna and I had planned to move into the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C., which was designed by artist Maya Lin, and this is, again, used in... Jenna, I don't know about you, but in my classes, this monument is used as an example, as like the prime example of monumental art. Yeah, it, yeah, you would be correct. Don't want to speak for everybody else's (laughs) experiences, but in my case, yes. It seemed natural that Gianna and I would want to talk about it for this episode, which may be inherently a problem of the way art history is taught, but then... I was reading what the babes had to say about public art, and they used this as an example. So for a little more context, in 1981, as an undergraduate at Yale, Lynn achieved national recognition when she won a national design competition for the planned memorial. So like Gianna was talking about earlier, there are usually different proposals submitted and chosen by a board and Maya Lin won this competition for planning the memorial. So the babes write, The Vietnam Veterans Memorial is an example of public art that is impactful, both for its location in Washington, D.C., and for its capability to allow viewers to interact with the work. The memorial consists of two 246-foot, 9-inch long black granite walls, polished to a high finish and etched with the names of the 58,318 servicemen who gave their lives in the Vietnam War. Visitors to the memorial can locate the names of their lost loved ones through a directory at the entry of the monument. 
As they walk the length of the walls, visitors are impacted by the gravity of the human loss of life represented by the sheer volume of names recorded there. The memorial is individualized and personal because it gives space to each soldier's name, rather than representing the sacrifice they made metaphorically through the use of figurative subject matter. So I thought this was super interesting that here we were having these exact same questions about what is public art, what is a monument, and the babes read our mind, Mm -hmm. or we read their mind, (laughs) and that circumstance in itself, I think, kind of sums up this complexity of all the interworking connections of public art and monuments, and they cite monument in their description of public art as well. Yeah, it's that description is also really interesting in the sense that Maya Lin was deferring away from traditional monument that is tied to sculpture. However, it's interesting because part of this history, when we talk about the Vietnam Memorial, is the uproar from the public and particularly those who were mm-hmm. affiliated with the Vietnam War But there ended up being a statue that was created as a compromise. So Mm. going back a little bit for Mylin, instead of creating something heroic or even celebratory, Lin imagined two stark black walls that began inside the earth, then grew in height until they met. To quote Lin, like a wound that is closed and healing. Creating a strong V-shaped wall designed to point towards the Lincoln and the Washington memorials would be inscribed with the names of the dead in chronological order. Lynn has stated that she just wanted to create something that was honest with people. She didn't want to make something that said they've just gone away for a while. To quote her, I wanted something that would just simply say they can never come back and they should be remembered. As Bianca said, this was a juried process, and Maya Lin actually beat out one of her professors who gave her a B on this project. (laughs) But Lin's kind of simplistic concept um, didn't sit well with a lot of members of the public who expected something maybe a bit more traditional and in kind of doing some research about this, some articles suggested, oh, you know, it needs to have pillars and monuments and sculptures and statues in this vein with with other monuments that we see in this grandioso scale. The U.S. Commission of Fine Art, which was in charge of the final design, uh, worked on a compromise. They did keep Lynn's original design, which is what we have now, but they did add a sculpture that had won third prize in the design competition. And it's by Frederick Elliott Hartz. And the statue is called Three Soldiers. It's located nearby Lynn's Memorial, and you can see it. But in this picture that we're looking at, it is positioned in a way that's almost hidden or underneath these trees. And mm-hmm. it is this kind of moment of action or contemplation from these three soldiers that we see like they are looking at something i did found another unique photo that seemed to be taken from the soldiers viewpoint in which it looked as though they were looking at lynn's memorial so Mm. the placement of both is 
being conscious of the landscape. And I think it's fair to say that this sculpture is also considering that. So since they did implement it, I'm happy to see that at least there's that similar tone between the two. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting to see the sculpture next to <laughs> next to Lynn's sculpture. Mm -hmm. Just looking at the two or thinking about the two, which one would you consider to be public art over the other? Would you take the sculpture that didn't win the prize in the first place to be a piece of public art where Linz is categorized as the monument or memorial next to it. And part of me does feel that way a little bit because this work by Frederick Hart is also created as a cast bronze edition. And when I think of like a cast bronze statue, that seems pretty synonymous to other public works of figurative art. Mm -hmm. Lynn's memorial is also very contrasting. It's black granite that's very reflective so that when you're reading these names, you're also viewing your own reflection. So there's not mm -hmm. only this internal contemplation, but there's also that physical act of reflection. And we do see that as well in the Oklahoma City memorial with the uh, beautiful pond of water that they created as well. So a lot of the same yeah, concepts the reflecting pool. Mm -hmm, playing here as well. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you bring up reflection in the context of her piece as well, because I think going back to the beginning of our conversation, it places the viewer inside the artwork. It gives them that added experience, especially with concepts like reflection that you otherwise might leave without kind of engaging yourself in the piece at all. So in that sense, I think the reflection for me is that kind of key point that gives it that edge into public art. And I'm not saying it's not public art, just mm -hmm. in when I initially think of the two and maybe they shouldn't be compared in the first place, but comparing the, the sculpture and the Vietnam Memorial, that act of reflection just kind of flips it for me where mm -hmm. public art seems in my mind something that is a little bit more joyous for some reason I think of public art as being some, something that's meant to be fun and engaging but putting yourself within this piece gives it that for mm -hmm. me I guess the last thing that I'll say about Lynn's memorial as well going back to our third concept for today which is earth art it is physically set up and designed as if it is scarring the landscape. And so that conceptual notion of scarring and healing, but having it in this permanent and perpetual state of, of, of uprooting the earth is, is pretty interesting. And I will say going back to the statue, it is hard not to compare the two, especially when it was put in there as a consolation of sorts. Breaking down the formula of monuments and memorials and how Lynn kind of differs from a traditional visual tra trajectory of what we see with memorials, I wanted to talk about the Holocaust Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe created by Peter Eisenman, a New York architect in 1999. The memorial was ceremonially opened in 2005. So Bianca and I were able to visit this memorial when we were in Berlin in the summer of 2019, but I wanted to read this description from the memorial's website. 
On a site covering 19,000 square meters, Eisenman placed 2,711 concrete slabs of different heights. The area is open day and night, and from all four sides you can fully immerse yourself in the fully accessible spatial structure. The memorial is on a slight slope, and its wave-like form is different wherever you stand. The uneven concrete floor gives many visitors a moment of giddiness or even uncertainty. Its openness and abstractiveness gives you space to confront the topic in your own personal way. The sheer size of the installation and its lack of central point of remembrance calls into question the conventional concepts of a memorial. This creates a space of remembrance, but not with the usual means. So I thought this was very important because not only is the structure of this memorial challenging monuments physically, but also the ways in which we write about them and experience this memorial is being challenged. So before I get into it a little bit more, Bianca, I just wanted to hear your perspectives and your thoughts from when we did visit this memorial. Yeah, I think out of all of the memorials and monuments that we've talked about throughout this episode, experiencing this one was the most immersive I've ever physically felt within a monumental or memorial space. You know, we were talking about reflection. We were talking about the landscape of spaces and how you can kind of walk around them. But with the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe, you are embedded within this architecture with a point of kind of no return. You can either be, as you were describing, on the slope where you're up high and you can see almost the entire memorial in your view. But then a second later, you have sloped so far down that you can't see your way out. It's like this maze. I think that not only speaks to the uniqueness of the physical piece as a monument, how different it is from any other type of experience that I've had with this type of work. But as we'll talk about, it it creates this, this lived experience, which is just, it's unlike any other, both emotionally and physically. I also wanted to share this passage from Eisenman's architecture website, because from my understanding and experience with this monument, Eisenman is not only challenging these constructs of what a monument must be like, but he's also a little bit ambiguous about some of the decisions and concepts as play. And I think that is maybe just conceptually speaking to how he wants us to challenge our own reflection and experience within the space. But nonetheless, let me quote this passage. In this monument, there is no goal, no end, no working one's way in or out. The duration of an individual's experience of it grants no further understanding since understanding the Holocaust is impossible. The time of the monument, its duration from top surface to ground, is disjoined from the time of experience. In this context, there is no nostalgia, no memory of the past, only the living memory of the individual experience. I thought also his description of the space was really important, kind of going back to when we were talking about Maya Lin's work. It's interesting to hear architectures talk about what the space and design is going to look like as a whole, and he really does describe it from 
what it looks like from an aerial point of view and looking at pictures Mm -hmm. of it from an aerial point of view feels quite overwhelming but it doesn't feel it feels different once you are in the space it's interesting Mm -hmm. to hear the website kind of describe the experience with giddiness but in some ways there is a little element of play or mystery as you're kind of going up and down these slopes and looking around the corner and, and getting lost in the space yeah, it does have that element of playfulness that you might expect from a piece of public mm-hmm. art. Something that is, it feels like you are supposed to play in a maze because it does feel like that. Well, and when but, we were there, it was interesting to see how people didn't just walk around the constructed paths in your way, but some of the concrete blocks are taller than others so you can actually climb on top of Mm -hmm. some in which we saw many people do including you know children and adults the interesting thing about this memorial is that i think it is also challenging location maybe in ways that the oklahoma city memorial memorial or the 9-11 memorial does very specifically because the Mm -hmm. holocaust affected europe in its entirety and so many other countries. The reason why this memorial was decided to be in Berlin and be in this metropolitan area was because of the remembrance and the foot traffic that would be able to go through this memorial. There are Mm -hmm. many site-specific memorials and works of art and installations, particularly in Germany. When I think of the Berlin Memorial, or even some of the other concentration camps, of course, those are very site-specific, and there are reasons why those are site-specific to preserve history. But it's very important to kind of understand the location of this and how Eisenman and most likely local government decided to put it in this very metropolitan area. I think it also speaks to how the architecture and and layout of Berlin is so different because everything was so destroyed and it feels like a very new city or new metropolitan area. It's quite interesting. I don't know how to almost describe it. Your point about place makes a lot of sense that it's interesting how, yes, site specificity is generally important to monuments and memorials, but how can you create an entire memorial for something of this gravity that affected an entire continent, let alone the world? Mm -hmm. How can you pinpoint a location in which you should theoretically contemplate that? But I think this end quote really wraps up our conversation where the architect says, in this context, there is no nostalgia, no memory of the past, only the living memory of the individual experience. And we've been coming back this whole episode to, I think, really honing in on that idea of the individual experience. Monuments and memorials maybe aren't so much about that nostalgia, that memory that we are told to be reminded of, but of the experience of the individual in the moment and I think that's a really interesting way to start reframing and thinking about how we talk about these structures and it's it feels like he's creating a type of monument out of Mm anti-monumentism the lack of memory seems counterintuitive 
to what we have been taught about memorial spaces. I also think the physical layout, and this is maybe just my own conceptual reading of the monument, but it does have that sense of conformity to it in its Mm -hmm. structure, but it breaks away from conformity, obviously, when dealing with these other types of artful discussions. But also I think the lack of conformity is probably important speaking to this very, very traumatic history mm-hmm. as well. Um, so I don't know. I think that's a good thought to end on in, in contemplating your experiences with monuments and memorials um, as we as we leave you for today. Yeah, your APT definitely. homework. <laughs> Before we do go... We did want to say our thank yous and our goodbyes to our amazing production assistant and OGPA, Audrey Kaminsky. Audrey is starting her own upcycled fashion brand called Timory, and we are so excited for her. We couldn't be more proud and excited to watch her do more amazing things because she's done so many freaking fantastic things for our prep talk and helping us get this up off the ground, and we are forever grateful to her. Audrey worked so hard behind the scenes to bring all of you listeners art pop talk. She worked so hard on the business side of things, and we are a registered LLC because of Audrey. And I just can't thank her enough for everything she taught us about starting a small business. And she did all of this for free. And I, I'll say it again, I wish I could have paid her for her time but you know what when timbery and apt start reeling in that money timbery's gonna be a sponsor of art pop talk and i hope that (laughs) we can you know return the favor with all the hard work that she did she's so deserving of it and uh, i'm so excited for everyone to check out timbery i will link it in our show notes for you so that you can get ready to do some shopping soon and upcycle your fashion Yay. Just a friendly reminder that you can always leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, give us a star rating if you'd like as well, and of course, turn all your friends into little art pop tarts. Please do. Please share this with your friends because, you know, we like to we like to pay people and we wish we could have paid Audrey. <laughs> so if you share this with your friends, hopefully that can start happening. And with that, we will talk to you on Tuesday. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. <laughs> Art Pop Talk's executive producers are me, Bianca Martucci-Fink. And me, Gianna Martucci-Fink. Music and sounds are by Josh Turner, and photography is by Adrian Turner. And our graphic designer is Sid Hammond. <laughs>